Bibles, if you would, and turn to Genesis chapter 17. Genesis chapter 17 is where we are going to be today, and Lord willing, we will finish the chapter. I want to read to us for our opening scripture reading here just the first two verses. Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Let's pray. Father, we read in this passage sort of the introduction to a very important chapter a very important subject of your covenant, particularly with Abraham, with his offspring. We read about your promises. We read about Abraham who has waited for the fulfillment of many of those promises. Father, I pray that as we have your word open this morning, as we are looking into this passage, I pray that you would strengthen our faith, help us to trust your promises, to trust your word. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our family has uh, spent quite a bit of time uh, road tripping together, and oddly enough, our, we really enjoy it. Uh, the, the two little children have spent much less time in the car than the older four have, but it's something we've always enjoyed, and uh, you get to know a lot about your family when you're cooped up in a small vehicle for thousands of miles, and, and, uh, et cetera. And so, but it's interesting, of all the observations or all the comments I could make about uh, about children or about road tripping, and, and I have a lot to make about that. One of the things that's very interesting is that uh, children, small children, really struggle with the concepts of time and distance. Because in your mind, maybe you've got a map, or maybe you've looked at your uh, GPS, or maybe you just know because you've driven that place so many times, you know how far it is, you know how long it will take, you know what an hour feels like you know what 16 hours feels like, and so you can kind of gauge and calculate. But a child, a small child, has no idea. And so that's why the question is asked every other mile, are we there yet, right? It's because they don't have conceptions of those things. But it's interesting that if you were to tell your child, for example, you're leaving from Fallon and saying, we're going to Reno, and uh, lo and behold, they look around themselves and they see a town. First of all, they see desert for, you know, however far. And they see a town around them. And they think, hey, are we in Reno? And you say, no, we're in Fernley, right? And in your mind, you're thinking, well, that's a good thing because we're halfway there. And, and in their mind, they're thinking, but you said we were going to Reno. Why are we in Fernley? They just don't have a conception, right? And over time, you kind of beat that into them, you drill that into them, you drive road trips so many times that they figure it out. But, but that's, that, that lack of understanding of perspective is a little bit like what we see going on in our chapter today. And it's a little bit like what we see in our own lives, that we sometimes look to the Lord and we say, but we're in Fernley. You said we were going to Reno. And we just misunderstand. We see in this chapter... Uh, some very interesting goings-on, and, and it's with a little bit of fear and trepidation that I uh, seek to preach the entire chapter in uh, one, one morning of reasonable time, because I, I could really do a number on this. There are themes that are introduced here and themes that are further developed, and there are concepts here, and there are, that we, could, we could branch off into each of those and, and focus on all manner of different themes just from this chapter, and here we're going to uh, try and cover it in one session. And one of the first things I want us to notice when we uh, look at the verses we already saw is 
Abram's age. He's 99. 99 years old. Well, you know, why is there an age marker in there? If you look at the verse above it, you look at the last verse of chapter 16, he was 86 when the previous thing happened. When Ishmael was born, he was 86. Now he's 99. So for us, it's like we've turned the page and we're continuing reading, but actually 13 years have elapsed in that time. And so we need to keep that in mind as we think about uh, how Abram would have received this message and what is going on in his heart and, and what really is happening in this context, that it's not just the next verse, it's 13 years later from the birth of Ishmael, which, as you recall, came about because Sarai suggested Hagar, her, her uh, maidservant, to be his wife and maybe bear uh, that um, promised child. And, of course, that was not the case and that was not to be the promised child but 13 years have elapsed. That's the first thing we want to notice. And the second thing we want to notice just from these first couple of verses here is God says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you. So what is a covenant? You know, we're we're Bible readers, and so we read that word occasionally. We don't really use it in everyday conversation probably. So what is a covenant, and and not just in our day and age, but most importantly, what is a covenant in the biblical mindset? Well, a covenant, put simply, is a solemn agreement. It's not just an arrangement. It's a solemn agreement between usually two parties, and there are oaths involved, and there are promises involved, and there are stipulations involved, sanctions, if the covenant is not kept. Often it's, it's brought together uh, and it's sealed with, a, with a, a blood sacrifice, which we saw when we looked back uh, just a couple of chapters previously. But this idea of covenant, this solemn relationship between two parties, and here it's not just two parties. Because you and I could go in together and form a covenant relationship, and that is what's happened when you've gotten married. You've, you've entered into a covenant relationship, and there you've entered in as peers, So you can enter into a a covenantal relationship that is peer-to-peer, but you can also enter in where there is a superior and there's an inferior. And that's what we have here where God coming as the superior and saying, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a solemn agreement. There are going to be promises given, and we're going to look at those promises, and there are going to be sanctions involved and, and things like this. And I could talk more about what covenant is, but we want to have that in mind as we enter into our passage here. And so uh, you have in your, in your uh, bulletin there a, a little piece of paper that has a couple of blanks uh, to fill out. I've given you the opportunity to kind of outline our passage today. And really, it's a pretty simple outline. It starts off with talking about promises. And here we have promises given. And then there's going to be a sign that's given. And then the promises are going to be explained or developed. And then you're going to have the sign taken at the end. So it's a pretty simple outline, but there's a whole lot that goes in here. And the first thing I want us to notice is Abraham's response. God appears to him. God says to him, I am God Almighty. And he says, walk before me, be blameless, that I may make a covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God comes to him. And by the way, this is the first usage of God Almighty in the Bible, the idea. This is El Shaddai, if you're familiar with, uh, with that term. It talks about God's power, God's might, God's sovereignty, God's ability to accomplish whatever He says He's going to do. Nothing can stand in His way. And so He says, I am God Almighty. And what does Abram do in verse 3? He responds appropriately. He falls on His face. I think we could avoid a lot of our problems in theology in our day and age if we would have this kind of notion of God. He's not a genie in a bottle that shows up to do our will. He's not someone who's at our beck and call. That When he shows up and says, Abram, I am God Almighty, Abram does it, says, it's about time, I've got a list for you. And he falls flat on his face. That's one of those themes we could develop, but we won't develop that. But we see here Abram's response. And as we continue reading 
I want us to notice, first of all, the language of fruitfulness as we, as we go through these first couple of verses. Abraham fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you. Now listen for the, listen for the, the, the fruitfulness language, the multiplying kind of language. My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. Did you hear all that language about fruitfulness and multiplying? Now keep in mind, this is God speaking to an old man. He's 99 years old. His wife is about 10 years younger than him. She's 89, 90 years old. God is speaking to an old man who has one child that's the wrong child. And God continues to say to him, I will multiply you, and I'm not just going to give you children. I will turn you into a nation, and not just a nation. I will make you nations. There is a great... Uh, multiplication, fruitfulness kind of language here. And in fact, it's so great that, that God goes to the extent of changing Abram's name. Abram's name is pretty great. It means exalted father. That's a great name. But he goes beyond that, and he changes it to father of a multitude, Abraham. So that every time someone calls Abraham's name, every time Sarah says, or Sarai, Sarah says to Abraham, uh, Abraham, would you come and He's reminded, the father of a multitude? And he's looking around for the multitude, <laughs> and he sees no multitude. But God, God is sealing this, as it were. He's changing Abraham's name so that he will be reminded that he is going to be the father of a multitude. And notice that God is making his covenant with Abraham but he says you're going to have seed, and I'm going to make a covenant with your seed, and, and you're going to have a, a multitude of offspring, and I'm going to make my covenant with them. It's not just Abraham. It goes beyond Abraham as well. So we, we see, first of all, language of fruitfulness, and we could dig into that. We could look more into that, but there's a, another aspect here that I want us to see at the end of the paragraph there. Look at verse 8. We hear language concerning land. I will Give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Abram had been promised all the way back in Genesis chapter 12 when he was, when he was sent out of his homeland into another land, a land that I will show you, and then he gets there, and God says in chapter 12 and verse 7, it's the land of Canaan, this is yours. This is what you're going to inherit. The promise has been made all the way back there, and God brings it up again at this point. He's talked about it in the intervening chapters, but here he reminds him again that this land will be yours. This land will belong to your offspring. He makes the promise concerning land uh, to them. But there's something else that I kind of passed by that's a, a third element here that I really want us to, to hear. We, we dare not miss this part. Look at verse 7. The end of verse 7. Right? He says he's going to establish the covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And look at the punchline of verse 8. I'm going to give you this land for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. That's the punchline. As, as precious to Abraham and to Sarah as the promise of offspring would be, as precious as the notion of being a multitude when they were so few, as precious as that was, the punchline is, I will be God to you and to your offspring. That's the precious promise. That's the punchline. That's the important part. And that's the same thing he does with the land promise. 
I will give you the land for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. He's not saying, I will be God, because he's always God. Nor is he just saying, and, and you will have some kind of connection with me. He's saying, I will be your God. I will be their God. And I struggle to find a good illustration to make this understandable to us. And the fear of choosing a poor illustration, it's a little bit like knowing an attorney versus having an attorney. I know some attorneys. And they have uh, certain uh, rights and abilities and, and skills and whatnot that could be useful, perhaps, right, under certain circumstances. But if you have an attorney, that's someone who has agreed to work for you, to advocate for you in a court of law. You have an attorney. And so you can turn to that attorney and say, well, here's the work I have for you. This is what needs to be done. You see how that's a, a different connection? Knowing, having a relationship, knowing something about uh, being related to an attorney is, you know, you're thinking, well, maybe in a pinch somehow, perhaps I could parlay that into something helpful. But if you have an attorney, you just turn to the, the attorney and you've got help right there. And that's a little bit like what is going on here. There is a relationship with God and his people. He says, I will be their God. The implication, and you will be my people. We have a relationship. We have covenanted together. We have joined together. Not just that you'll know something about me. Not just that, you know, perhaps I will occasionally do something in your life. Or, or that you will have seen me do something in other, someone else's life. I will be your God. And so, that's a, a, a powerful notion there. And, and we dare not miss that. It's, it's tacked on. It makes the other two more powerful. It makes them more significant. Really, it's the, it's the, the, the undergirding uh, truth that makes having a multitude of children wonderful is that and God will be their God. And having a land, the glorious thing about having a land is that God will meet us there. You see, Ishmael, we're going to see a little bit later that Abraham's going to offer Ishmael again. We're going to see that Ishmael is blessed. And Ishmael is blessed incredibly. It says of him that he's going to be blessed, he's going to be, be multiplied greatly, but he will not have the blessing of having God as his God. As blessed as Ishmael is, the blessing that matters is not his. It's going to be Isaac's instead. So God is promising himself to his people. And so we, we, we hear strong notes of the presence of God, of this covenant relationship. I will be their God. And the implication is that they will be my people. So this is the, this is the, the nature of the Abrahamic covenant, is that connection. There's more to it. There's detail that we could talk about. But that connection is at the heart of this covenant. And these are the promises that are given. But we also see that there's a sign commanded. A sign is commanded. Look at verse 9. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep. Between me and you and your offspring after you, every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought from with your money will surely be circumcised so shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant so here's the covenant sign that goes along with the covenant that God is establishing God has already made promises and you see this in in biblical co covenants there's a promise being made multiple promises being made and and the heart of this covenant 
uh, promise is that I will be your God, you will be my people. Though there's the multiplication, there's land, there's other things connected with that, but the heart of it is our joining together, and there's a sign that goes with it. There's a reminder, a biblical uh, sign of a covenant is a reminder of the stipulations, the promises, the agreement, the nature of that covenant. It's a reminder to each of the parties, and we have a couple of them that we can think of right off the bat. First of all, we've already seen Noah and the ark, and what happened after the flood? There was a sign given. It was the sign of the covenant that God was making with all of creation, and it was the rainbow. It was to be a reminder. And interestingly, it says in that passage, it's to be, it's to be a reminder to God. Of course, God's not going to forget Right? But it's, 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 to be, it's to be a stamp, it's to be a reminder to God. And of course, every time we see one, we're to be reminded as well. Now, God said He's not going to destroy the entirety of the earth by flood again. But I remember that time He did, and I remember what was involved in that. We're reminded, right? So the, the rainbow is a reminder. The, it's a sign of that covenant. Well, when you look forward from where we are in the Bible and you go to the Mosaic Covenant... There's a sign for the Mosaic Covenant as well, the covenant that God is making with His people at the time of Moses. Moses is the one who is mediating that covenant, and the sign there is the Sabbath. It's the keeping of the Sabbath. We talked about the Sabbath in Sunday school this morning, but it's interesting that the Sabbath, which had existed all the, all the way from Genesis chapter 2, and is, and is hit upon again in, in Exodus 16 and Exodus 20, and it becomes a, a, a normal part, a normal uh, part of uh, the life of Israel, it's actually more than just a normal part. It had been there all along, but it is the sign of this covenant so that, so that the keeping of the Sabbath is a weekly reminder for the people of Israel of the covenant that God had established with them. So every time they celebrated the Sabbath, every time they rested from their labors, they were being reminded. Well, in this case, the sign of the covenant is circumcision. That every male, and you can see that it really is every male, it's not just those who have a certain name or those who are directly your descendants, it's everyone in your household, every male from the time of eight days old and up is to be circumcised. And so you have this, uh, this promises have already been made, this covenant has been established, and there are signs that go with it. There is this sign of the covenant that goes with it. And look, look how... Uh, look at verse 14, and we see really what the penalty is for someone who would decide not to take that covenant sign upon himself. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So here you have the idea that a, a man who is unwilling to submit to have the foreskin of his flesh removed is himself going to have his life removed, cut off. That's, that's the penalty for breaking this covenant. It's a strong one, strong penalty, clearly. It's going to involve death. So we saw that there were, there were promises that were given. We see a sign commanded here. And now we see the promise explained as we move on to our next chapter. Look at verse 15. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. There will be a son that you will have, Abraham. Now, back in, in earlier chapters, chapter 15, we already saw that, that Abraham had the idea of, well, uh, since I'm not having a son, that's not really working out. God must mean something different. So my heir is going to be Eliezer of Damascus. Someone who doesn't come from Abraham nor from Sarah. And of course, God corrected that and said, no, actually, the son is going to come through you, Abraham, your very own child. So what do we have happen in chapter 16? You have Sarai say, well, it's obviously not going to happen with me. So here, take my handmaid, Hagar. The child's going to come through you, Abraham, but apparently not through me. So here, take Hagar, and, and uh, they have a child together, and it's Ishmael. And what does God say about Ishmael? That's not the promised child. He's coming here, and he's saying, Abraham, you will be the dad. Sarah, you will be the mom. You two together will have a child. Stop, stop looking around for other options. It's going to be 
you too. And so much so that God changes Sarai's name to Sarah. There's no real difference in meaning there. The significance is that God changed her name. They both mean princess. But the fact that God changes her name is the significance of that. Now, so God comes and He says, look, Abraham, (laughs) okay, I I know you're slow on the uptake sometimes. It's going to be you, and the mom is going to be Sarah. You see Abraham's response in verse 17, then Abraham fell on his face. Now, we saw before that that had been the appropriate response. Not so much this time. Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Not with joy, not with excitement, not with relief. He laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's a hundred years old? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is nope. In his mind, that ain't happening. Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Rhetorical question. In his mind, the answer is nope. And so Abraham says to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. So we see Abraham's response. And Abraham is kind of an up and down character, isn't he? Sometimes I'm astounded at what he will believe. That God tells him something and he believes it. It's amazing. What a wonderful example of faith. And at other times, God has explicitly spoken to him, told him what's going to happen, and he just won't do it. He just won't believe it. He laughs because he is scornful of what God has just said. And so he, he says, no, uh, let Ishmael live before you. Really, he's probably the one. He's got to be the one because we're too old. You know, uh, I don't know if he thinks the Lord isn't paying enough attention to the number of gray hairs that they have, how old and bent over they are. But he says, well, what about Ishmael? Take Ishmael. And so that's his counteroffer. Ishmael might live before you. But it's interesting because God very clearly corrects him and says that, no, Sarah will be the mother of the child. She will be the one who will bear the son. And this other son is going to be Isaac. God said, no, verse 19, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. He laughs. So every time they would call, hey, Isaac, come do the dishes, they're being reminded, yeah, when God told me that, I fell down and kind of laughed at him. Abraham's being reminded, even by the name of Isaac. I will call, you will call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, so the promised one is going to be Isaac, a child you've not yet had. As for Ishmael, what's God going to do with Ishmael? Abraham had just offered him. May Ishmael live before you. He says, I have heard you regarding Ishmael. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. He's going to be greatly blessed. He's going to multiply greatly as well. And he's going to be a great nation which is a little bit different than the promises made to Abraham regarding uh, Abraham and Sarah and their child, who will be made into a multitude of nations. And princes will come from him, which is a little bit different, a little bit lesser than the statement made about, about Sarah that kings of peoples will come from her. So Ishmael is going to be blessed. He's going to be blessed greatly. And we saw also that the blessing, the primary blessing, the greatest blessing, the, 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 the undergirding blessing to Abraham and to his offspring is the presence of God, the relationship of God. And that Ishmael will not have. So Ishmael will indeed be blessed, but not like Isaac. So we see there, verse 21, I will establish my covenant 
with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. God reaffirms that it's Isaac who will be the one, the the covenant child, and he gives a time frame. So now, suddenly, it's more important to us that we understand that he's 99 years old. God isn't just uh, continuing to push this promise out there somewhere, someday, sometime, Abraham. He sets a clock about this time next year. This child will be born. So we have a timeline finally given, and then we move on into our last uh, paragraph here, and we see Abraham's response. And this is, this is greatly encouraging, whereas uh, Abraham's laughter earlier was not as encouraging. His response here in this final paragraph is very encouraging. Look at verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and then Abraham took Ishmael his son, And all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day as God said to him. He obeyed completely. Himself, his son, everyone in his house, he did it completely. No one was accepted. No one was outside. It was complete. And it was immediate. That very day. is a phrase that's going to be repeated again, but we see here that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, and Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. You see the completeness? There's nothing left undone here. That very day, verse 26, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the in the house, and those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So he obeyed completely. He obeyed immediately. And I think the implication here is that he obeyed in faith. Whereas moments before, or perhaps verses before, he fell down on his face and he laughed. And he said, there is no way that can happen. I mean, I'm not a biologist, but... I understand that 99-year-old men and 89- or 90-year-old women don't have babies. That's the essence of Abraham's argument. Had been. God readdresses the situation. He explains what's going on. says, no, it won't be Ishmael. Ishmael is going to be blessed greatly, but it's going to be Isaac. He laughs. It's going to be Isaac who will be the one with whom I will make my covenant. And he will have a multitude of offspring, and I will make my covenant with them. And now we see the response of Abraham. No longer is he lying on his face laughing. He gets to work immediately. He believes the promises that God has made about the offspring, about the the blessing, about kings of peoples coming from them. And and, and he he believes that. He takes a step of faith in, in belief. And, by the way, he believes the threat that goes with it, the covenant sanction. Whatever male among you is not circumcised will be cut off. He believes God, and he acts immediately and completely. But he does so in faith. Abraham, who is often not very impressive, is very impressive in this moment that he who is 99 years old and whose whose wife is, is about 90 takes that step, circumcises his whole family himself included. So what are some implications here? I, I had trouble narrowing it down, I confess, because there are a lot. And I don't promise that we won't come back to this chapter to readdress some of those other trails I could have chased. But first of all, first implication for us, God's Word is reliable. Despite all the decades that Abraham had experienced about 25 years of his life, he's been waiting for this promised son. That's a long time to be waiting. As you're getting older and the clock is ticking, and then the clock stopped ticking because everything died, <laughs> he's been waiting. So all the decades would argue against, against uh, God's Word. It would seem to be confirming that he and Sarah were simply not going to have a son 
But God said that he would. And we're going to see in a couple of chapters that he will. God will come through. There's a related uh, implication here. Not only is God's word reliable, but secondly, we don't interpret or judge God's word by our experiences or circumstances. Can you imagine being Abraham at that time? You would have said, God, I know definitively. (laughs) I've been waiting 25 years and I've just gotten too old. Clearly, we've misunderstood God. Clearly, God is wrong or something. We don't interpret or judge the Word of God by our experiences or circumstances. Instead, we judge our circumstances and experiences by the standard of God's written Word. God's Word is reliable. There's a lot there, but let's move on. Secondly, the blessings of Abraham extend even to us. God told Abram in 12.3 that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And here in chapter 17, we saw that Abraham will become the father of a multitude of nations. And in fact, we read in the New Testament in Galatians chapter 3, verse 29, that if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The blessings of Abraham extend to all those who have come to God by faith in Jesus. Next, God's promise to Abraham, this is further implication, God's promise to Abraham and his offspring that I will be their God and they shall be my people is one of the greatest and most hopeful promises in the Bible. What a promise. He's promising that we won't just know about God or have ideas about Him or some distant experience with Him. He's promising here a covenant relationship with God as our God, us as His people. And we pause here for a moment because as we think about that implication, we realize that we, like like Abraham, are born separated from God because of our sin. That, That we don't have Him as our God from birth. That in fact, we're, we're guilty before Him because of the, what we've inherited from Adam, because of the things we do ourselves. Our sin keeps us distant from God. But God was not content with that. He was not content to leave it there. He would have been just to leave it there. He would have been good and right to leave it there. But He didn't. He sent His Son instead, who would be the one who would, who would obey not have sin of his own, but have full righteousness of his own, and who would go to the place of penalty for you and me, to pay the penalty for our sins. God would put him to death for that, and then God would raise him from the dead, saying that his payment was acceptable. And for all of us who will put our faith in Christ, we will find that because of Christ, in Christ, we will have God as our God. And we who were formerly at enmity, at distance from God, we who formerly had a barrier between us and God, will be His very people. And so these promises extend even to us. But it's not just by faith in this age. It's not just something that we, uh, we, we believe forever and there's no resolution to it. When we look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3, that this will come to pass, what we read there, where John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God Himself will be with them as their God. Then now we walk by faith. And there will come a time when we will walk by sight. And God, in His dwelling place, God's dwelling place will be with man. And we will be His people. And that's an implication. That's a beautiful thing. That time when 
faith will come to an end when what we believe to be true now, what we, what we know and understand from God's Word uh, to be true now, yet will become experientially true as we dwell with God in glory. For all of us who have faith in Christ. And so I think that's the first point of application this morning, is if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you need to recognize the barrier that exists between you and God. That on your own, you cannot have Him as your God. And you cannot be His child. But by faith in Christ, that can all be dealt with. Your sin taken away because of what Christ has done and His righteousness given to you meeting the standard of God's perfection, and He will warmly accept you into His family. And you can say with Abraham, and you can say with John, and you can say with all the saints, He is my God, and I am one of His people. Another point of application. The, we talked about the sign of the covenant, and this sign of this covenant uh, with Abraham is circumcision. Well, the sign of the new covenant is baptism. And so if you have faith in Christ, if you are one of God's people by faith, if you have come to Jesus and you've recognized your own need and you've, and you've cast yourself upon Him, you need to take upon yourself the sign of covenant, which is baptism. So I would encourage you that if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, let's rectify that. Now, you don't have the same kind of threat the threat here that someone who is not circumcised ends up, ends up dying because of it. We don't, we don't have that threat. But we, take, we have the same relationship. Our covenant relationship with God is in Christ. And how do we demonstrate that? How do we show that? What's the sign of it? What's the reminder of it? It's baptism. And so come talk to one of the elders. We need to get you baptized if you are a Christian. And finally, as a point of application... Like Abraham did in this chapter, we need to respond appropriately to God's covenant with baptism, as we've just mentioned, but we need to receive the promises of God that are ours in the new covenant. Those promises are that Jesus himself is the one who fulfills the obligations that we have to obey God perfectly, to pay the penalty for our sin to give that to us by faith. In the process, He creates a new heart within us. He gives us life where there was no life before. He makes us His very own people. We're sprinkled clean. We have right standing. We have the law of God written in our hearts. We have, we have a heart of stone that's been turned into a heart of flesh. These are the promises of the new covenant. Those are the promises. We need to receive those promises. We need to believe those promises. And then we begin to obey and, and live as God's covenant people. I'm struck here by the alacrity with which Abraham obeyed to take circumcision. Abraham and Sarah were like children in the back seat of the car confused about why they haven't seen the fulfillment of God's promises yet. They look around them and they see circumstances and they say, but God, you said we were going there. You said we were going to Reno and we're in Fernley. And that's kind of like us. We chuckle because we're guilty too. Right? Maybe, maybe they've misunderstood God. Or, or maybe God will accept an alternate plan. Here, what about Ishmael? <laughs> maybe we can help you out, God. And if you think about it, what progress has really been made in this chapter? We started the chapter, Abraham and Sarah did not have a child, and they were 99. He was 99. By the end of the chapter, do they have a child? No. <laughs> still no child, and he's still 99. But God has been at work, even though the end has not been accomplished, even though they've not yet arrived to their destination They've received explanation, which we should give to our child every now and again to help them understand that, well, it takes this long to get to Reno and we're only halfway there. The ex explanation is given, right? They have explanation. They have new names, both of them. Their names have been changed. They have God doubling down on His promises 
I'm not just going to multiply you. You're not just going to have a bunch of offspring. I'm going to make you a multitude of nations. God reiterates His promises. And they, they have some idea. They don't understand it. It's not super clear yet, but they have some idea of Ishmael's future. He's going to be blessed. He's going to be, he's going to be multiplied. He's going to be a great nation. And they now have Isaac's name. They have a, a timeline. And they have the understanding that he's going to be the one who will inherit the covenant promises. He's the one who, who will have that special relationship with God. He's the one who will become a multitude of nations. So they have a lot of explanations. That's the majority of what's been accomplished. But it's interesting that through those explanations, you see God working in the heart of Abraham. That at the very beginning, God appears, Abraham falls on his face as he ought to. And as God has, has, has made these uh, further promises and whatnot, and well, Abraham falls on his face laughing. It's like he's going backwards. And God explains further. God tells him what's really going on. God reiterates his promises. And at the end, we see Abraham obedient. We see Abraham believing what God has said. We see Abraham who is trusting in God, who is walking with God. God has developed his faith through this time. And he did so largely by explanation, largely by reiteration, largely by driving home the promises that he had already made. And folks, that's one of the reasons we come together on the Lord's Day. We wonder what's going to happen on the Lord's Day. We wonder what's going to happen at church, you know, and not just who we're going to see and whatnot, but what is God going to do? That's really the question that kind of undergirds our thinking on a Sunday morning if we're anticipating it. I think sometimes probably we just get up and we come there because it's the next thing on our list, and we all have times like that. I get that. But when we're really thinking, hey, tomorrow's church or today is church, What's God going to do? What, what do we think about? What are we looking for? I think we can take some encouragement here from this chapter that often what we receive is God encouraging us by explaining to us what we already have. He doesn't need to do a new thing. We, we struggle to believe the old thing. And so we remind one another of God's Word, we, we, we remind one another about what God has promised. We seek to explain what does His promise mean. What does God's Word mean so that we can better understand it, so we can get a grip on it. It's because when we do that, that's when we are encouraged and that's when we are built up. That's what we see happening here with Abraham. And that's what we see happening here on the Lord's Day. And that's why not long ago we, we instituted an evening service again. We're going exactly counterculture, right? Culture is kind of doing away with that kind of stuff, and, and the church in general kind of doing away with that kind of stuff. And, and we, we wanted more opportunity to hear God's Word, to join together as Christians and sing. More opportunity to, to have Genesis 17 happen to us, that, that God would teach us again the things we've already heard, that He would clarify through the preaching of His Word, that He would lift our eyes to Him in song and in prayer and fellowship and in God's Word. And so that's why we do the things we do. We are looking to God. We are looking to His Word. We are seeking to understand what He has for us so that we can go from that place of laughing at God because that surely can't be what He meant. I must, I must have misunderstood God. And circumstances kind of do that to us. And when we join together, we're reminded of God's Word. God is at work in us so that we can be transformed in a way like Abraham here is transformed, that he's willing to, to respond in obedience, even taking drastic measures like circumcision of his entire household because he believes God. He believes the promises that God has given. He believes God's Word. And so we come together every Sunday to remind ourselves of that primary promise about Jesus Himself, that He really has obeyed where we've not, that He really has given Himself to pay the penalty for my sins, even my sins and your sins of this week.
And by faith in Him, we are acceptable to God as one of His children, and we can call God my God. He calls me His child. By faith in Christ, He will call you His child. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we have uh, gone quickly through an important passage, I've been struck by Your tender and patient ministry to Abraham. That Abraham, who was against circumstances that would would argue that you are not faithful. His circumstances would argue that, that you don't keep your word. His circumstances would argue that he's in Fernley, not Reno. And you ministered gently to him. And you brought him to a place where he understood. He was renewed in his faith. He trusted you, that you would provide that promised seed. And Father, as we look from our perspective and we, and we see this from the, uh, from the time in which we live where the promised seed has come. Isaac is the promised seed. Jesus is the greater promised seed. And the inheritance that he receives and gives to us is greater even than that of Isaac. And by simple faith in Christ, by turning from trusting in anything else to trusting in Jesus alone, we get to be the inheritors of your grace and your mercy in Christ, even as promised to Abraham here. Father, as we go out, I pray that you would encourage us with the truth of your word, that when the world would say God's word is unreliable, when circumstances would say God's word is clearly untrue or you've misunderstood it, that instead we would reinterpret the world and our circumstances in light of what your word says. And may we have our eyes fixed on you, And may you continue to minister in our hearts as we do. Father, we ask for your blessing on our time tonight and on this congregation and on this week. We pray in in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, uh, I'm going to um, remind you, actually, that we have a family that comes forward every week who would love to pray with you.